So surviving that, uh, as anybody, would be difficult. But think back to yourself, Gina, at 13, what kind of coping skills did you have for indescribable pain, fear and terror? No one had ever seen what was happening to me. And I was in a large teaching hospital in New York City. Not one single doctor. Welcome to A Second Chance. For the most positive and uplifting time on the radio, stay tuned and get in tune with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Welcome to A Second Chance Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to bring you our guest, who is a trauma survivor who struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder for over 25 years. Since her recovery seven years ago, she is dedicated her entire career to helping survivors, caregivers, and healing professionals learn about effects of trauma and more efficiently navigate the recovery process. Today, she's going to share her own personal story of what has happened to her and how she has found the path of healing that has led her to helping others. So ladies and gentlemen, let us introduce and welcome Michelle Rosenthal to the show. Hey, Gina. Thank you so much for inviting me on this show. I think it's so important that we share our stories, and I'm delighted to share mine. Well, I'm very excited to hear your story, and I wonder if you could start by giving a brief introduction about who you are and what you do today. Absolutely. I am Michelle Rosenthal. I am the founder of HealMyPTSD.com, which is a website, as you mentioned in your introduction, for survivors, caregivers, and healing professionals all about post-traumatic stress disorder information, so that means symptoms, and recovery, which means treatment modalities. There is no one-size-fits-all experience of PTSD or recovery. And so the Heal My PTSD website includes everything about symptoms, causes, statistics about PTSD, and also different recovery approaches in addition to podcasts and webinars all about how recovery happens, how trauma affects the brain, and books about how to begin what I like to call a healing rampage because I think in order to heal, it's not like we just float along. We have to really actively engage in that space. So once I finished my recovery, I came out of that it was like I'd, I was waking up for the first time and I looked back and I thought, oh my gosh, if I had just known all of this stuff, I might have healed two decades ago. And so that became my quest, my mission to help other people heal way faster than I did. And while you can't predict how long recovery will take, my mission with the Heal My PTSD site is to give survivors and the caregivers that are helping them and supporting them and the healing professionals in the same uh, role, tools to allow the conversations to open, to allow strategies to be developed, to allow implementation, and to create a community because, you know, we don't heal in isolation. We heal in community, and that community connection, I think, is very important. Oh, I love that you share that part about healing as a community. And I see that a lot of your work's been published in some amazing places like CBS and the Huffington Post. You have award-winning books. I'd love if you could take us to the beginning of your journey because you weren't always an award-winning author. Is that correct? Yeah, yes, that is very correct. When I started writing, <laughs> I was seven years old. 
and uh, and and so no, at that time I was not an award-winning author, <laughs> but but I was a like a cute little kid that was very happy, go lucky, great home, and and then trauma changed everything. So if anyone's sitting here listening to this story and they're thinking, well, right now I'm in the hospital and I haven't written any books, they can definitely see that anybody can heal and they can find their own path and definitely help and impact other people. Absolutely. And I'll even share with you that, you know, my original trauma was in 1981 and we can discuss that. But two years ago, I was in the ICU with sepsis that really debilitated my brain. So you could even say two years ago, I was not sure I was going to be able to keep writing or keep speaking or keep doing the work that I was doing. Sepsis really damaged my my memory. It damaged my ability to speak and to read. I mean, I had to wait for my brain and, and hope and cross my fingers that my brain would come back online. So we all have those moments where we are feeling completely powerless, helpless, and compromised. And even in those moments, we have to remember things constantly change. Our bodies, literally from a scientific perspective, are organisms built to change. So whether or not we like the changes is less relevant than the fact that the opportunity to change always exists. So even if you change in a way you're not happy with, the opportunity for you to change again and develop changes in a process that allows you to change in ways that feel better to you, that's always there. And we have to have a certain amount of patience to wait while that process occurs. Oh, that sounds so wonderful. Now you have shared your story before, so I will get you to share it today. But if people wanted to hear more deeply your story, where's a couple places that they could go to hear the entire story? Well, the entire story is in my first book, which was a a memoir of my trauma, survival, and quest for recovery. And it covers the whole recovery process in depth. So it gives you sort of a, a perspective on how one person who was so damaged for 25 years could actually battle her way back. <laughs> and and that book is called Before the World Intruded. And there's a lot at beforetheworldintruded.com. Um, or you could just go to healmyptsd.com and access that. There's a video and, and a lot of other material. And you can even read a portion of the book. Um, and then, of course, I, I speak about my trauma all the time because I think so often what happens in our minds is when we're silent. And I there's even a chapter in Before the World Intruded um, that that's all about no word. It's called no words. And it's all about that place of silence after trauma. And the title before the world intruded (laughs) refers to, I just after my trauma wanted to go back before the world Mm -hmm. intruded. If I could just get back to who I was before, I figured I'd be fine. But of course, you know, Gina, we, you can't go back. (laughs) Life keeps moving forward and you have to figure out what to do with that. So I've written the whole thing in the book. And then in, in our podcast series, I reference my story all the time in the interviews that I do. So, and, and our YouTube channel, I I have a lot on there about my personal story. So youtube.com forward slash heal my PTSD. Um, so I, I, I tell my story a lot, Gina, because, because I think we need to normalize the trauma experience and we mm-hmm. normalize it by shedding light on it or shining a light on it. And we do that through speech. And so Michelle, I love how you're talking about this so openly. And the reason why I'm bringing all this up before you tell your story 
is because I find there's very little research or sharing of PTSD and that it seems they don't really know that much about it yet. You know, I, I think that that was definitely true when I got started. When I first started showing signs and symptoms in 1981, PTSD was, you know, only a year old in terms of the clinical diagnostic criteria. And it mm -hmm. was only being applied in the United States, at least, to, you, to, to the Vietnam veterans. So no one was looking at the civilian kid and saying, oh, yes, that's classic PTSD. And then for so long, as my symptoms got worse and worse, this is during the time where there was no internet. There was no Google. So it wasn't like I was going to hop online and put in my symptoms and something would pop up and say, oh, all signs point to PTSD. We have that now. In fact, on the HealMyPTSD.com site, we have a PTSD self-test. So yeah. anyone who thinks they may be experiencing symptoms can hop on and it's a 22-question test. It's based on the diagnostic uh, criteria for PTSD. So it's clinical in its basis. Of course, it doesn't diagnose PTSD, but you can take that as I did when I was in my healing process. I took that test and I took it straight to my therapist and said, what do you think of this? So wow. I think the conversation is getting bigger about PTSD. I think the biggest problem with the PTSD conversation uh, globally is that the media only covers it in reference to the military. And right. the military is a, an enormously important aspect of PTSD, but it is just one small part of a very large global PTSD population. And in the civilian world, we don't talk enough about causes of PTSD, which range from domestic violence to child abuse, sexual assault, natural disasters, medical trauma, car accidents. I mean, there are so many causes for PTSD. And I think that's really what your question speaks to, Gina, is we don't talk enough about yeah. what PTSD means and how it affects everybody because it's really an equal opportunity offender. Yes, absolutely. All right, Michelle, I don't want to keep everybody in suspense anymore. Take us back to your childhood and tell us how did you go from just a happy-go-lucky little girl to going through all of this intense trauma? Well, in 1981, I was 13 years old. I had a general run-of-the-mill infection, and I, I went to the doctor, and my doctor was away. So the covering doctor took a look at me and said, oh, yes, you need this medication. And he prescribed the medication, and I took it. That's what you do when a doctor tells you what you need to heal. Well, that's what you do before you're traumatized by a doctor who does that. Um, what, what we did not know and what he didn't know because he did not check my chart, the doctor, my original doctor who was on vacation at the time, had made a note in my chart that he thought this particular medication was not good for me, that I was possibly allergic to it. And Ew. nobody revealed that to my parents. We only found that out later. Um, and, and because this covering doctor didn't look at my chart and see that note, he just wrote the prescription for what everyone, the antibiotic everyone gives for that infection. And the antibiotic was Septra. It's a sulfa-based antibiotic. And it just about killed me. It turned me into the equivalent of a full-body burn victim, head to toe. So I was hospitalized in over a period of weeks in a quarantine burn unit room. I lost 100% of the first two layers of my skin. So by the time I came out of that 
experience, you can imagine, well, the pain is indescribable. Even, mm-hmm. even medicated, there's no way to explain what that felt like. Today, when people, I had toxic epidermal necrolysis syndrome, which is a fancy word for saying your skin dies and falls off. And um, today, when people have that it's just one in two million people per year, so we're not saying this happens to a lot of people, but for those of us that it happens to, today they immediately put those patients into a coma, and you're not out uh, until it's over, okay. which I think is awesome. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the less trauma, the better. Um, but I was totally awake and conscious as, as this happened, and, and literally what's happening is your skin is being ripped off of your body, and so surviving that... Uh, as anybody would be difficult, but think back to yourself, Gina, at 13, what kind of coping skills did you have for indescribable pain, fear and terror? No one had ever seen what was happening to me. And I was in a large teaching hospital in New York City. Not one single doctor had any clue what was happening. So there was no one guiding us. There was no one who really knew what to do. There was no protocol. So every day it was just wake up and wait for the shock that was about to occur. And so, mm-hmm. so that played a large part also in what I think created the PTSD symptoms later because we know PTSD is based on a life-threatening situation where you believe that your physical or emotional self is in danger. And mm-hmm. And and then when I came out of the hospital, I knew, I mean, I've got scars and lingering conditions, but I knew that I was going to make a full physical recovery and that I was, it was predicted that I would live a normal life afterward, physically speaking, with the exception that I was told when I left the hospital, I would not survive this again. This illness kills 70% of its victims and, and each time you have it, it's a, a worse illness. So because it almost killed me this time and I had a near-death experience, out of body, all this stuff, um, they told me you won't be able to survive that again. So you'd better make sure this doesn't happen again. Well, holy cow. <laughs> so you're 13. You've missed months of school. You're going back to school. You're walking around with all of this fear, all of this anxiety, and the feeling that you're trapped in a body you can't trust. And on top of that, you've been told if you're not careful, this will kill you the next time. I, I, I don't know how any child can bounce back, which is what the therapist, my mom, was prescient. She was really amazing. Both my parents were amazing throughout this whole thing. And my mom, before I left the hospital, insisted that I speak to a psychiatrist because she she just said there's no way anybody could go through this kind of experience without some kind of effects. And I didn't want to talk about it. I was There was just no way. Have you ever had an experience where the enormity of the experience is so big you're, um, you're just so overwhelmed by it, and the only way you can manage it is to not talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I immediately just went into silence mode. So the psychiatrist came in. I didn't speak to her. She didn't talk to me. She sat there for 45 minutes oh, wow. <laughs> while I refused to talk. And she told my mom, don't worry. She's a kid. She'll bounce back. But I didn't bounce back. And within six months, I really had a lot of PTSD symptoms that nobody recognized. And that extended for for several, several years and led into a lot of self-destructive behaviors until things got so bad 
physically and emotionally and mentally that that I was really forced into therapy and you know through a confluence of events when I finally started doing my own research um, mm-hmm. discovered PTSD and realized I was working with the wrong therapist I actually needed a trauma therapist at which point I got my diagnosis and you know it 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 seems like oh and then she healed it was a really long process <laughs> but that's mm-hmm. the thumbnail version wow so just to kind of go over a few of the points that you brought up you had a 70% chance at 13 years old that you would not survive yes and then they told you that you had to make sure that that never happened again yes because it would kill me the next time because the illness gets worse each time it's triggered the illness it's an allergy that turns into an illness and so you know it's sort of like um if you touch something that gives you a rash well the first time it could just give you a little red splotch on your skin but the next time you touch it that mm-hmm. red splotch will will extend maybe up your arm and the next time because each time your body is mounting a defense it's really like an autoimmune defense it's attacking itself to to try to uh, create a boundary against something that it feels is wrong for you so in, in that sense every time you're re-exposed to an allergen it gets worse and worse and worse because the histamine response as far as I understand it, and I'm not medically trained in this area, but the histamine and the system response becomes bigger each time. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm just thinking that sounds like so much pressure on a teenager to to just feel like you have to have that responsibility to avoid that from happening. And you're so right, Gina. I was terrified. I wouldn't even take a Tylenol if I had a headache because I was afraid I, it could kill me. So I, you oh. know, you get into a lot of warp, distorted beliefs and thought processes after trauma and definitely for me one of them was I could die at any minute I mean the world is not safe at all Mm -hmm. and there's no one who can protect me and there's no way to predict this and I mean it won't surprise you to hear I developed a a very (laughs) a very strict eating disorder because it became my body is I don't know what it's going to do so let's Mm -hmm. not put anything in there because that would be safer than putting something in there that would kill me so we get real twisted up in our in our post-trauma beliefs but those are all the those post trauma beliefs that become so distorted actually provide you the roadmap for healing because when when I started to identify okay I have I have some real issues here <laughs> you know I had to find a way to be comfortable in my body and feel safe in the uncertainty mm-hmm. so a part of my recovery dealt with that and you know today I'm 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 happily at a great weight I I'm I love my body now, whereas for all those years I, I hated it and I enjoy being in it and I, I, I enjoy food. So there is definitely a way to take those distorted trauma beliefs and thoughts and programming and find a way through a series of small shifts to mm-hmm. get from A to Z where you are released now released in the certain sense of my life is not driven by that do I still have to be aware am I more hyper vigilant than other people about medications well yeah I mean that's just what we Mm -hmm. do that's partly what's smart and it's partly you know we want to keep ourselves safe 
So, I mean, I wear a medic alert and anytime I'm in a medical situation, I drive people crazy <laughs> saying over and over, no sulfa, no sulfa, no sulfa. So, um, so while that seems a little hyperactive from the outside, maybe that's how I feel safe on the inside. And, and that's okay because I'm healthy in my lifestyle and my habits. And if I'm a little over the top in making sure that people are aware of what will harm me, I think that's okay because I think that's how we learn after trauma to take ownership and responsibility for our experiences and mm -hmm. it's how we create a sense of safety in uncertainty and so michelle before we move on to your healing journey if you're open to talking a little bit more uh the first probably 20 interviews or so we talked a lot about the mm. out-of-body experience and some of our listeners told me they're very interested in that and also, I know some people in the PTSD world will say that they have a lot of dissociation and it feels like they've left their body. So I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about that for you. Yeah, definitely. I'll start with the PTSD dissociation. Um, I've worked with a lot of clients who dissociate. Literally, they don't remember five hours at a time. So I think there are different types of, of leaving the body. So when, when we talk about dissociation and PTSD, we can be as extreme as, uh, and I'm thinking of a couple of my clients right now, who literally for hours at a time, they, they lose time because they're not present. Mm -hmm. So we can have that. And, 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 or I'll share with you, even during my PTSD experience, I used to try to explain to my therapist and I later learned and understood this as depersonalization, the sense that you're not in your body. I used to explain to her, like, you see my physical body here. Mm -hmm. And I would point to, like, my chest, my lap. Here is my physical body. But I am over here. Like, the real me is over here. And I would hold my hand up to the right side of my head sort of three or four feet away. Because I never felt like I was in my body. Mm -hmm. I always existed outside of my body. And I would sort of watch my body go through the motions of a day. And, and so we, we, there are different ways to experience dissociation. And, and a lot of times people will say during, their, during a trauma, like a part of them just floated up and observed the scene mm. and, uh, and, and watched themselves going through what they were going through. And, and the psyche is very smart. It does that as a self-preservation mode when it knows we're about to be overwhelmed. My, my experience in the hospital was a little different. It was more of a near-death experience, and there was a tunnel ringed with white light, and I was very happy to be going. <laughs> and I could feel my whole body just sort of shutting down. It was a very weird and, and actually peaceful sensation. Um, so, so that was a little different than dissociation in, in the terms of PTSD that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just find that whole idea very fascinating with the white light and the feeling like we're leaving our body. And a lot of people have explained it is very peaceful. It's super peaceful. It's fantastic. And I mean, as, as odd as that sounds, it was a time where I felt so held within a loving energy and so connected to a universal source of energy and a time where I felt so safe. It was wonderful. Again, as odd as that would sound to somebody 
who doesn't have a background in trauma or isn't willing to understand what I mean, but I'm trusting you to go with me. It it took away, in retrospect, I mean, it's taken away all of my fear of dying. Mm -hmm. It was the most peaceful thing I've ever experienced. And I've talked to a lot of other people. In fact, this past weekend, I was on a trauma panel and we were talking about near-death experiences and all of us had had the same experience, which you find a lot Mm -hmm. when you start talking about this. But we all had the same, that same sense of peace, that same sense of lack of fear and, and, and having all obviously come back into our bodies. We all had, had since then a a complete perspective shift on the idea of death and dying and, Mm -hmm. and experienced a, a total elimination of fear of that process, knowing that in the release there, there is such an enormous peacefulness that comes with it. The, I think it's it's interesting when we're on the outside watching somebody die. It may look uncomfortable, yeah. and, and in many cases, the pain of the circumstances is. Um, but the actual process of letting go and and ascending uh, from the body, I believe, from my experience and, and what I've read and, and other people, I believe it actually is very peaceful when you do detach from the pain of the physical body. So do you think that you chose to stay or were you just put back and that was that? Uh, Oh, no, it was a choice. (laughs) I was uh, very aware as I was leaving my body. I was and I I could feel myself suspended between the tunnel and the room, the hospital room. And my parents were on either side of my bed at the time. Uh, And I was so I was it was very torn. Um, As you'll hear from a lot of people, they that that they're sort of halfway between one world and the other and there are reasons to stay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I very softly, I want, I, it was, it occurred to me that I hadn't thanked my parents and I wanted to tell them goodbye. And, uh, so I did say to them three sentences, um, thank you. I love you. I'm dying. Uh, and I was happy about that because the pain that I'd been in, I was, I had exhausted my capability to withstand that kind of torture. Mm-hmm. And so I was completely fine that it was over. And, but of course my mother was not. <laughs> of so it was interesting in that moment. I don't know what I thought she would say, but it definitely was not what she said. And, and that surprise got to me um, because this was about 10 or 12 days into my, my illness. And so I'd been screaming, literally screaming for days uh, because of the pain. And so when I said just very softly, I love you. Thank you. I'm dying. My mom didn't even miss a beat. And I don't know how she had, she'd been sleeping by my bedside the whole time. So she was with me 24 seven and I don't know how she could think at that moment. I think of it now as an adult, and I don't have kids, but I can imagine if one, if my child said to me, I'm dying, I would flip out mm-hmm. and start saying, what do you think you're doing? No, you're not. You know. But my mom instead used humor, which was really interesting in retrospect because humor is one of our most innate biological programming. Uh, effects and and not that she knew that at the time, but but my mom is very intuitive. So so I made this horrible pronouncement, and my mom said to me, Michelle, no one who's been screaming as much as you for the past couple of weeks could possibly be dying. <laughs> and she just see it's funny. She just totally refuted the reality. 
And that was surprising. And I had the same response as you. I laughed. <laughs> and it was and it didn't it's not like I didn't laugh right away, but like I remember feeling the laughter somewhere and it got stronger and stronger and in the process of it coming up to where I was or me coming back to where it was, I guess is really what was happening. Um, it, it was life affirming. It, it, it tickled me. And, and then once she had my attention, she put, she's like five foot two. She's from Georgia. Mm -hmm. So she has, uh -huh. when she gets tired, this little Southern drawl and she, these enormous black eyes and she put her face real close to mine. I couldn't be touched because my skin was all raw. I, you know, I didn't have the first two layers of skin, so I couldn't be touched. Like someone in that moment might hold your hand yeah. or, you know, coach you with a hug or whatever, but I couldn't be touched. So she put her face real close to mine and she said to me, you listen here, Michelle, courage is a choice. So right this minute, you go down deeper into yourself than you've ever been and you find the strength to pull yourself through this moment and you come back here. And that, that, that got to me, you know, when sometimes we're lucky enough to really want to live that we can force ourselves through those moments and succeed. And, uh, and so she coached me back and she coached me through and, and, and I did what any 13 year old girl would do. I did what my mama told me. <laughs> and, so, and so here we are today. So, so it was a, an interesting experience and one that really shaped me for the rest of my life. Oh, that brought tears to my eyes. And I have to be honest with you. I can't actually imagine what it would have been like to be in that situation. There's something that's definitely preventing me from feeling that. Oh, you're strong. Well, do you have kids, Gina? Oh, yeah, I do. I think as a mom, you would just so identify with the terror yeah. of that moment and the extreme emotion that my mom had to be feeling. And yet she was able to set all of that aside and, and focus me, which I guess is what moms do. That's why you're so amazing. Oh, my daughter's 14 too. So it's, mm -hmm. it's scary to picture, but I also know that that's what made you who you are today. So it's hard being in that moment with you, but I am definitely excited to share the path, you know, once you found your diagnosis and when you were able to start your healing. Right. And so, so 24 years after the moment that I just described to you, I was really a mess. 20, uh, probably 20 years into my eating disorder, so super skinny and, uh, and not doing well physically. There were problems with, and this was not just related to the eating disorder. PTSD is very stressful. I interviewed a, a therapist on my radio show once, and he, he said to me, you know, Michelle, the mind is capable of producing 50% more stress than the body can handle. Wow. Think about that. What happens when the body can no longer handle the stress? It, it you know, it it finds ways to release it. That's why we get hives or eczema or stomach aches or we throw up or you know whatever it is. The body responds and it will send you a message. Things are not okay down here, and and your brain and your mind will either you know get the message and do something about it or like I did, deny the message and keep pushing and. Um, so by the time I was in my late 20s, I had a complete and utter meltdown triggered uh, because a doctor had given me a medication that I'd had an adverse reaction to and not the same as my original trauma, but it 
decimated me for a, a week and I was terrified. Mm-hmm. And, and so that led to a, a slew of other problems that, that became so stressful over a period of years that my liver, my stomach, my small intestines, my bones, I had trouble with everything. And I have this enormous medical file, all of the reports showing my liver enzymes were sky high, my intestines had shut down, like nobody Everybody could see what was wrong, but nobody could figure out why this was happening. And it turned out to all be so linked to psychosomatic issues. Because when I finally got into recovery and and this this physical meltdown connected to an emotional meltdown forced me into the recovery process, which even at the beginning I resisted. I I showed up for therapy each week with my my psychologist and I expected him to do the work. I'm here. You do the work. Like I did the work of getting here. (laughs) You do the work now that I'm here. (laughs) So, so needless to say, not much recovery that was sustainable happened. Um, but I, but I did learn to, uh, practice transcendental meditation which was huge. It really brought me down from the ceiling to a place where I could function on a daily basis. I still do TM to this day. You know, I started in 1998. I'm still doing it now because it's a phenomenal practice and I love it and it feels good. And you can use it to reduce anxiety. You can also use it in the regular day-to-day to give your brain energy, to help yourself focus, to help your brain optimize how it works. So there were good things that came out of my first therapist in addition to the fact that I learned to talk. After so many years of being silent, mm-hmm. I learned to talk. And and that was hugely beneficial. And we did a bunch of um, energy processing, you know, like emotional freedom technique thought field therapy, tapas acupressure technique, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, all geared toward releasing the trauma that had been trapped in, in the body and the mind. Mm-hmm. And, and all of that was useful. The problem was it didn't heal me. It helped me cope better. It reduced my symptoms. But I wanted to eliminate my symptoms. And that I was having trouble doing. And I, I think... Um, by the time I got that done, I learned something essential that I really think we should make sure we express today, which is that everybody's healing process is different. Mm -hmm. It takes a different amount of time for everyone, different approaches, different practices and techniques and modalities. And so what we all do is what I did in my healing rampage, which went on for 10 years, (laughs) was just keep trying different things. Just keep researching, keep out reach programs uh, between yourself and a healing network so that you're constantly getting more and more information and saying, okay, this has taken me as far as I could go with it. Now I need something new. Mm -hmm. Or there was one thing that I tried. I was, it, it made me so much worse. I plunged off the deep end of depression for days after this one modality. And I thought, okay, well, we're not doing that again. Mm -hmm. So it's a trial and error process. And even in the times you think you're not succeeding, you are making progress because healing is incremental. So everything you do lead is like making a deposit in your healing account. So while I could look back and say, well, that one thing that I did that made me more depressed, you know, was useless. I don't really think so. It taught me stuff about what I needed to do to heal and make it work. Mm -hmm. 
So by the time I got it done, I'd used nine or ten different modalities, and the two that really set me free were hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming, and I just fell into those by mistake. They were a sort of Hail Mary, nothing else is working (laughs) kind of thing because I didn't believe in hypnosis. And uh, so I went into my my hypnosis experience saying, well, this isn't going to work, but at least I'll be able to cross it off on the list of things to try. And I was shocked by the outcome, completely blown away by how this just was a good fit for me hmm. and, and for many people. I mean, I went on to get trained in it and, and, and neurolinguistic programming, and I use it to help people now. So I see it work all the time. So much of recovery, I think, has to do with the traditional path of learning to talk and cognitive behavior, but we don't heal from those things. We really need the other alternative track running parallel or sequentially that addresses the subconscious mind and the programming and the body Mm -hmm. because talking, that's just the conscious mind and that's just 12% of your brain. Wow. So your body physically, every little cell holds memory. So you have to address that the body is holding memories that are feeding your mind and your mind has an entire vast belief system associated with the experience you've had. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're going to really heal, you have to access that other 88% and reprogram it so that, and it's easy to do that, but, but in the reprogramming, that's where the the shift and the freedom that's sustainable can really come because 100% of your behaviors and your action and your motivation is coming from the 88% of your subconscious mind and the body messages that's that it's receiving in that feedback loop between your mind and your body. Wow. So can you give us just a quick, like, where would you start to access that and how does that work? How to access what? This, the subconscious mind? This type of healing. I've never heard of this type oh. of healing before. Oh, oh, it's amazing. Well, first of all, the HealMyPTSD.com website has information about hypnosis. So you can hop onto the treatment tab in the alternative practices page. We have a full explanation of hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming and how they both work. What I particularly love about them both is you don't have to keep telling your story. I think it's important to be able to verbalize our story if if that feels right to you. I don't think we have to in order to heal. Mm -hmm. For me, it felt right, obviously, because I keep telling my story. (laughs) But, uh, but, But after we tell our stories, it's important to stop being defined by our stories. Mm -hmm. And so in healing, we have to stop telling them at some point. And that's what I love about these alternative practices like hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming, total recovery processes, zero retelling your story. And that is much more gentle than re-traumatizing yourself by telling the details of what happened to you over and over and over again until you hopefully no longer care about it. Mm -hmm. So HealMyPTSD.com, we've got a ton of information. I also have interviewed hypnotists, hypnotherapists on my radio show. So there's a, an interview actually with my hypnotherapist. Her name is Laura King. So if you hop on to HealMyPTSD.com and, and do a little search on the podcast page for Laura King, you can listen to her. Um, she's got a great way of explaining why this works, how it works. And and then there, there you know, you have to, if you're thinking about doing this, you just have to make sure that you find someone who's really qualified. I interviewed seven hypnotherapists before I chose the one to work with. Wow. And that was because I really, 
I, I wanted to make sure that I was working with someone who understood trauma, who had experience with trauma, who was trained to be able to help with trauma specifically. So, so it's important to, to recognize you can't just walk into any hypnotherapist. You have to really do your research before you try it. Good to know. And I think I just have one more question about your process. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your community of friends was like and if you had support at that time or if you had to find it. Oh, that's a good question. Well, like many survivors, especially those with post-traumatic stress disorder, we isolate Mm -hmm. a lot. So I did not have friends. Uh, I had acquaintances, no one who knew what I was going through. Uh, actually, when I was done and started doing the work I'm doing, my, my best friend from nursery school was shocked <laughs> because I started talking about what I'd been going through for the past 34 or five years that she had known me and her jaw just opened and she said, how did I not know any of this? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you didn't see me that much. I didn't keep in touch with you that much. I mean, we're always connected because we we've known each other since we were three, but a year could go by and I wouldn't speak to her and it wouldn't change our friendship. But that meant she really didn't know what was happening in my life either. And, uh, and, and so even somebody who had known me that long had no clue what was going on with me. So I didn't have friends that were supporting me. I did have my family, but that's hard on a family because, uh, you know, PTSD symptoms, which we haven't gotten to really, but PTSD symptoms include a lot of re-experiencing. So intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, nightmares, you just can't stop thinking about what happened. There are four categories. Re-experiencing, the opposite of that, avoidance. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to hear about it. You don't want to have any sensory experience that reminds you of it. Mm-hmm. Mood alterations where everything, you're just so depressed you're shamed, you feel guilty, you see the world as if it's all bad and yourself as all bad. And, uh, and then the fourth is hypervigilance where you're just constantly terrified something bad is going to happen and doing your best to prevent that. So those are hard things for a family to be involved with. I mean, my mom, bless her heart, I was full of rage all the time and usually directed it at her Mm -hmm. because You know, you direct rage where you feel most comfortable doing it. And I knew no matter what, she would still be there. So I vented on her a lot. And I've spent a lot of time apologizing for that because it really wasn't fair to her. My dad on the other, so she always stood by and my dad adores me, but he was like done. He just, he just on numerous occasions said to her, just stop speaking to Michelle, you know, just stop it already because, you know, there's like, I don't know how to help her. I don't know what to do for her. And it's hurting you so much. Just let her go. Mm -hmm. So, and my dad is tremendously loyal, but you know, even in that instance, he was done because I had become this horrible, difficult person. And, and so it's challenging for families. And we didn't know that I had PTSD. Once I had PTSD, everything, you know, everyone could get a little bit more on board with understanding what I was struggling with and why. Mm -hmm. Um, But even then it's challenging because you're, you're a control freak. And so you're constantly controlling everybody and and it make you're constantly anxious. So to answer your question, I had no friends who were supporting me mostly because I had no friends and the few that I had, I didn't really interact with. And, uh, and with my family, they supported me as much as they could, but you're essentially very alone in the PTSD process, or at least I was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And partly I think that was by choice. It was easier for me to manage my recovery if I didn't have to explain or interact 
with anyone else. Um, there are other people who it really helps them to have a, a support network, and I advocate having a support network. I personally was not able to achieve that in a dramatically meaningful way, but the further I got along in recovery, the more momentum I gained, the more I opened up to allowing support in. So while my mom had constantly been trying to support me all those years emotionally, uh, I didn't want that support. But when I started seeing that I was healing, I became a little stronger, a little more courageous, a little more self-connected. And that allowed me to feel like, well, I could share a little bit of this with somebody else and, and allow myself to be comforted. I was very afraid of being perceived as weak. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to accept help when you're feeling weak inside and afraid of letting everybody know it. The more courageous I felt, the more I was able to say, you know what, I could really use a hug right now. <laughs> or if you could just come over and be near me mm -hmm. because I'm feeling so uh, soggy today or I'm feeling frightened today. So if you could come have lunch with me, that would make me feel better. And I found a partner who was amazing and didn't mind how many times in the middle of the night I would wake up having a nightmare and screaming or crying. And of course, that would wake him up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I would let myself be supported in those moments. And he would, you know, just put his arms around me, put his hand on my forehead, and I would feel safe and I would fall back to sleep. So I think it's a transition sometimes between needing to be isolated to find our bearings in ourselves. And once we do that, then opening up to support. But that, again, is just my personal process. All of us are different, so each person has to find the process that works for them and just build on that, knowing that what you feel most intuitively is right for you is what's right for you. And you are the expert in you. And that is the most important thing to remember as you move forward because everybody's going to have an opinion. But not everybody knows what you feel capable of in every moment. And it's important to trust yourself and to validate your own feelings and knowledge while you listen to what everybody else says and factor it in. Wise words of wisdom, Michelle. And you've been so generous with your time, and I'm so grateful for that. Everybody can read. You have hours and hours of information at healmyptsd.com and your book, Heal Your PTSD. And I'm going to link everything into the show notes. Is there anything that you would like to leave us with? Yes, actually. I think one of the things that we're so frightened about after trauma is that we have changed and we're stuck this way. Like this is now who we've become. And, and it does feel like that. But I think the most important thing to remember is an experience changed you. That's the bottom line. An experience changed you. And that gets back to something we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, Gina. We are our bodies, our minds, our brains, our organisms built for change, which means any experience can change you, a bad experience or a good experience. And so understanding that opens the doorway to hope because you can change in the most tiny way every day over a long period of time until you finally get to a point you look back and you say, holy cow, trauma bent me into this awful shape, but look, I've straightened up this part or I've straightened up all the way, or I'm still a little bent. I mean, I think I, I feel I'm completely healed. I have zero PTSD symptoms. I haven't had symptoms for almost a decade. So in that sense, 
I'm quote unquote healed. At the same time, we bear our trauma scars. So I think the real thing is to discover what I like to call the new you. And actually my second book, Your Life After Trauma, was all about this. It's, it's all about how to discover the new you, how to deal with the grief of the change and a, and a three-step process for creating your new identity now. Because you can't go back to who you were before, but you can go forward to a life of meaning and purpose and love and joy. And, and I think that's the most important thing to remember is that you can change. And as long as you hold on to that thought, that's, that's the origin of all your creativity in your recovery process, is looking for how am I going to create the changes that I want to see. So, Gina, thank you so much. This, this has been a great interview. You had really good questions, and I appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Radio for the most positive and uplifting time on the radio. So tune in again with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio.